Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I am the host of the podcast that's titled Revolution Z. And this is our 182nd consecutive episode. Last episode, we began a new sequence, relaying the chapters of the book, No Bosses, plus some interjected content upon reading the material into the Revolution Z format. This episode continues that sequence, with the title of this one being No Bosses, Assessing Who Owns What. As with the first chapter, this one too begins with a couple of quotes. First, imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can, which is of course from John Lennon. And second, there is only one party in the United States, the property party, and it has two right wings, Republican and Democrat, and that's from Gore Vidal. The chapter then proceeds. Economies include ownership relations, modes of making decisions, ways of organizing tasks into jobs, norms for determining incomes, and relations that mediate who produces and who consumes what. So to start, the values that we put forward last chapter, last episode that is, should guide us. So what should we think about owning things and especially owning places where people work? Do we need some new approach, or can we maintain the ownership relations that we have? I interject. This has arguably been the central focus of all history's revolutionary movements, and especially its anti-capitalist movements. It remains a central concern of no bosses, but no longer exclusively so. The chapter continues. You own your shirt and your cell phone. You decide what to do with them. You decide how to display them. You decide when and how to use them. I don't make such decisions about your shirt or cell phone. You do not make such decisions about my shoes or television. That seems right. Owning items we receive from the overall social product makes ethical and economic sense. It has no particular downside vis-a-vis our values. I interject. There we have the logic. Does a feature aid or trash our values? That is the question. The chapter continues. In contrast, Mr. Moneybags owns a company. It produces some important good. It mines some important resource. It provides some important service. Mr. Moneybags decides what to do with his company. He oversees the products of his company. He oversees the employees he hires to make his company productive. I can't decide those things, nor can you, nor can any of Mr. Moneybags' employees. I interject. These are not just concerned words. Moneybags is lord and master, definer and dictator, and so much for self-management. The chapter continues. Mr. Moneybags has dominion over his company like you have dominion over your shirt and cell phone. Does that make ethical and economic sense? Ownership conveys dominion over that which is owned. It is true for you and your shirt and your cell phone. It's the same for Mr. Moneybags and his company. Mr. Moneybags wonders, if you can own your shirt and cell phone, why can't I own my shirt and cell phone factories? I interject. That idiot question often stymies dissent, but not ours. The chapter continues. Personal dominion over a shirt and a cell phone don't subvert self-management, eviscerate equity, smash solidarity, deny diversity, and submerge sustainability. Personal dominion over a shirt and a cell phone doesn't subvert the participation, dignity, and freedom of others. But 
Dominion by Mr. Moneybags, and roughly 2% of the population, over the resources, venues, tools, and technologies necessary to produce shirts, cell phones, and everything else, and over the work lives of those Mr. Moneybags hires to do his bidding, does subvert self-management, equity, solidarity, diversity, and ecological sustainability. It does subvert participation, dignity, and freedom. I interject. The author, which was me not so long ago, was taking a simple approach. Follow up at the values, seriously, and asking readers to do the same, relentlessly. The chapter continues. I believe it is highly likely that people choosing to read this book already agree that the 2% who own what we can call the means of production, or productive assets, accrue vastly more income and exert vastly more say over outcomes than warranted. They severely lack empathy for those below. They aggressively narrow options. They rapaciously violate ecology. They diminish participation, dignity, and freedom. The property problem is therefore that sensible rules for owning personal possessions become horrific rules when extended to owning resources, tools, and workplaces, because resources, tools, and workplaces affect the lives of countless people beyond their owners. The personal rules for owners of shirts and cell phones benefit everyone. The same rules for owners of society's productive assets munificently serve those owners but impoverish and degrade everyone subject to the owner's decisions. It turns out that to abide by our values, we should preserve personal ownership of clothes, swing sets, books, and furniture, but not personal ownership of resources, machinery, and workplaces. I interject. So in a few words, nothing overly complex, just no flinching at what we are arriving at, we have arrived at the type of descent of all prior anti-capitalists. Get rid of private ownership. The chapter continues. This is the underlying reason why critics of capitalism have always proposed eliminating private ownership of productive assets. Such ownership elevates owners, called capitalists, above all others. It conveys incredible wealth and power to the owners and consigns the rest to various levels of enforced obedience and imposed impoverishment, all the way down to total subordination and abject poverty, called wage slavery. But if Amazon's owner, Jeff Bezos, shouldn't own and thereby have dominion over Amazon, what's the alternative? That is the property problem for which anyone who wants a better economy needs to have an answer. I interject. Needs to have an answer? The point is that critique without positive proposal is morally warranted. It can even be productive and inspiring. But critique without positive proposal, repeated over and over and over, for decades upon decades, is so repetitive as to become boring, unproductive, and even annoying. That, of course, implies a task. Propose better. Okay, the chapter continues. If a bunch of money bags can't own and thereby accrue a very large part of the contribution to society's social product of Amazon or any other company, who should get such wealth? We will soon make a case that workers should get income for the duration, intensity, and onerousness of the socially valued work they do while people who cannot work should get an average share. 
Additionally, of course, some of society's product should go to meeting collective needs for health care, safety, public roads, and schooling, and so on. Some should also go to new construction and research for the future. The property point is only that none should go to anyone on grounds that they own productive assets. However, that is only half the issue. It is only half because the dominion that ownership conveys is not only about income, it is also about control. I interject. The thinking is clear enough, I hope. Get rid of ownership of capital because it intrinsically obstructs our values. No compromise. Follow the values. But then see what the consequences are that we have to address for our property choice to succeed. The chapter continues. Owners in our current economy make decisions about what to produce, how to produce it, who does the work, what they are paid, and much else. If there are no longer owners of companies, mines, and workplaces, who should make such decisions, and by what calculus and methods? We will soon propose that such decisions should not be the purview of some individual or group simply because they have a document that says they own the company's mines or workplaces in question. We should all be able to agree on that. Some say the alternative to private ownership should be that the state should own the companies. Others say the alternative should be that workers in the unit in question should own it. Still others say that nearby communities should own it, or that the entire population should own it. A conceptual problem with all this is that all these proposals fixate on ownership as if owning is somehow essential, so we have to allot ownership somewhere. But why? I interject. It isn't because the issue of conceiving better is impossible, or even intrinsically complicated. It is instead because it is hard to escape the concepts we have so long employed. It is hard to think outside the box we are intellectually trapped in. Indeed, habit, more than intrinsic complexity, is what makes offering positive proposals for a better alternative difficult, but nonetheless manageable, whether for the economy, as in no bosses, or for polity, culture, or kinship. At any rate, I suspect fueled by that unstated conviction, the chapter proceeds using what is sometimes called a thought experiment to combat habit. Imagine being shipwrecked with a bunch of others on some unreachable island. You all know you will be there for many years. You have to arrange yourselves to produce, distribute, and consume goods and services. You have a big meeting of the new residents of the lost island. Some confident, gray flannel-suited fellow stands up and says, In the real world, I owned a big company. I should own a big chunk of this island's land and resources. Then I can run those, hire many of you, and help everyone thrive. I see 20 others like me among you, and 980 folks who worked for people like me before. So let's establish ourselves here as we were before. 20 owners and 980 workers for owners. My land, my resources, my workplaces, once you build them, and your wages received from me. 20 owner deciders and 980 beneficiaries of owner's decisions. I hope you will agree that this wannabe owner should be given a shovel and the patience due to a person suffering a severe mental malady. I interject. Note the gray flannel reference. What was I thinking when I chose those words? I bet I had in mind Dylan's Gates of Eden, this verse. 
the motorcycle black Madonna two-wheel gypsy queen and her silver-studded phantom cause the gray flannel dwarf to scream as he weeps to wicked birds of prey who pick up on his breadcrumb sins and there are no sins inside the gates of Eden. The chapter continues. On our imagined island, it is easy to see that if we say people's income should have nothing to do with something called ownership, and if we also say people's influence over outcomes should have nothing to do with something called ownership, then there is nothing left for ownership of productive assets to convey. The immediate conclusion is that no one and no thing should own society's productive assets, just like no one should own the sky or the oceans. The concept of owning makes no sense when applied to the island's land or resources, and also makes no sense applied to its mines and workplaces. Such ownership should not exist. The issue at stake isn't some abstract notion of deeds to mines and workplaces. It is instead the very tangible issue. Who should get the wealth created by mines and workplaces, and who should decide what mines and workplaces do and how they do it? If not owners, and surely we can agree it ought not be owners, then who? Our equity value will guide us toward a proposal for income. Our self-management value will guide us toward a proposal for decision-making. But before we take those steps, if no one is to own them, how do we view resources, workplaces, tools, and even knowledge and skills? A useful concept to apply is the commons. All these productive assets are either gifts of nature, like warmth from the sun and resources from beneath the ground, or they are products of a long history of human creative activity, like technology, knowledge, and skills. They are parts of a natural and a built commons, which should together be respected and used responsibly for the benefit of all society. To misuse or waste them is a sin against nature and our own history that diminishes our future. I interject. Notice the same logic of envisioning is unfolding. First, our values said to us, if you take us seriously, that is, if you take us, your values, seriously, you must do away with private ownership of productive assets. Then it said, that eliminates the accrual of wealth by owners. It eliminates rule by owners. We must come up with a worthy, viable alternative to each. But what of the property? It is a commons. But then we must come up with how to use property that doesn't misuse or waste it. A whole visionary task list is emerging, not from some kind of complicated reasoning, but instead from a simple but unrelenting values-based reasoning. The chapter continues. The property problem is thus partly eliminating the usual arrangement in which some few people own and oversee productive assets. But it is also partly replacing those few owners as beneficiaries and rulers of these gifts of nature and these products of human history with, instead, a new and different approach. And it is also a matter of having the rest of a new economy interface compatibly with that new approach to our natural and built commons, which approach is in turn a matter for coming chapters. What this chapter has already set forth, however, is that we propose no private ownership of productive assets, which means we propose no capitalists, which means we propose no more capitalism. What we don't yet know is what we propose to take capitalism's place. And I interject. That is how No Boss's short second chapter ended. 
The book's presentation is just beginning, but already it has arrived at and has taken the key ever-present socialist step vis-a-vis -vis private productive property. But it has also indicated that that step foreshadows tasks to come. That is, if workplaces, researchers, and knowledge are a commons, what criteria and procedures will determine who gets the bounty they help us produce, and who decides by what procedures, how they are used, and even who gets to use them at all? We see already that proposing no capitalist ownership is positive and even coherent, only if we can go on to offer proposals for all that is essential beyond capitalism for economic life to further self-management, equity, solidarity, diversity, sustainability, internationalism, and universal participation. Can I make a little plug? I could use your support. Option one, how about get a copy of No Bosses? Yes, I am going to intermittently, every other week or so, dish up another chapter. But why not have your own copy to read at your leisure, or lend out as well? Option two, you could visit www.patreon.com slash revolutionz to make a donation. Some serious financial help, and I could ramp up this project. Thanks in advance for your help. And that said, this is Michael Albert, signing off for Revolution Z. Until next time.